Welcome to the Architectural Education Off the Record Podcast, where we discuss everything, something, and nothing about architecture. I'm your host, Vincent Hui. In today's episode, we're going to be engaging the notion of design build. And I've been very fortunate in getting uh, our three workshop staff in, into the mix today. So we got Jordan So, Jason Remelson, and Phil Tisler. Uh, guys, care to introduce yourselves? Hello, my name is Jordan So. I'm the workshop manager. How's it going, everyone? I'm Jason Ramelson. I'm a workshop technician. Hey there, I'm Philip Tisler. I'm a workshop technician as well. All right. So, gentlemen, I think this whole entire discussion isn't just simply about uh, design builds, isn't simply about craftsmanship, but I think there's everything in between, right? And I thought it would be really good to get you guys down into this mix because, A, you guys were pretty much uh, at the beginning of when I first started, um, you know, you guys were little kids. I, I taught you all. Um, and I think one thing that really is interesting to note, you talk to old uh, Ryerson alum and you talk to, you know, the, the students that graduated or even students right now. And it's a market difference where we go, a lot of our students now are doing design builds, right? And you guys were part and parcel of that, right? Like when I first came in, it was very much, let's do a couple of things. And now we've kind of got everything from Redux to like, you know, the entire uh, extracurricular committee to ArcSoc funding it. So I think that first off, I want to say thank you guys for being part of this, right? Uh, not, not, not the workshop, but the, the kind of movement that we've had, because I think a lot of what we do right now from a student design build uh, perspective stems from a lot of the work that you guys did. So very quickly, uh, can I just get some insight on what you guys have done way back in the day? Um, well, also, I'd like to thank Vince for giving us all the opportunities, because if it wasn't for him, <laughs> we would okay, be okay, stuck in that, the... That, okay, I don't pay you guys, so don't worry. So you guys, <laughs> it's better to don't say that stuff, okay? Just the, the department, we've done a lot to support, okay? So, so, so go ahead, talk about your project, man. It's true, though. Like, like I know, I know you're trying to be really um, cool about it, but uh, before Vince, we really we were in the dark ages, like we didn't have anything digital, like Vince brought all the digital stuff in, he gave us all the opportunities for extracurricular work. Back in the day, we were just doing it on our own, we would, you know, find like, um, we would build, uh, what was the one thing we built with tones here? We yeah, did the, like the, a, the shed, the shed, the shed. Yeah, it was like a music shed outside. Yeah, but everything yeah, in that quad not, space in that quad space outside our building. Yep. Yeah, that's correct. That was one of the very, very first ones. But it was, um, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I just want to go through stuff that you guys have done because I think a lot of uh, students, for example, don't know you, uh, the three of you, as as people, A, as students uh, who have done stuff in the program, but also they probably don't know the, some of the projects that you've done. They probably know some of the projects, but they don't know that you were the guys behind it. Oh, the one project that Jason and I worked with uh, worked on was one of the first Redux projects, right? The, um, the Fabricata, what was it called, Jace? Yeah, you yeah, called so, it, man. Yeah, you so called it that. <laughs> It was uh, called Terra Fabricata. It was uh, it was in uh, winter 2012, but I think we started uh, at the end of the summer, August or early September, mm -hmm. and uh, that was for come up to my room at the Gladstone Hotel, and it was this very interesting project. We also worked with um, our friends Sam Gontus and Dadine Dudul, and it was this dichotomy of two completely different projects that came together. I think. Jordan and I worked on one side and then Dean and Sam worked on the other. And uh, then we had this great addition of all the, all the lamps from the digital tools projects was integrated into the project. And uh, it was this uh, environment that, you know, really uh, made you think and crawl and, and have to adapt your body in order to sort of meander through the, 
the, the environment or room. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, while we got Jason, I mean, there were, you, you've since done other projects beyond uh, that come up to my room as well, correct? Oh, yeah. I've, I've done a whole range of different projects. I mean, um, as a designer, uh, we worked on, uh, yeah, the come up to the room was a first project. But even before that, we started with the Oxalis. I think that really was what was the uh, initial project of Redux Lab. But Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, also, that's true. Yeah, um, we um, <clears throat> we also did the stops night market. Jordan and I and a, a few other uh, uh, Redux Lab members. Uh, we and then I had the opportunity to jump on as a as a, as a prod a production volunteer to to uh, help out on Nuit Blanche projects, um, uh, window installations like what Philip designed at the uh, Batashu Museum, for example. And so for me, it was always an opportunity to sort of jump on projects, learn new skills, and uh, put myself out there. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil, do you want to just comment on some of the work you've been wor- you you worked on? Yeah, I worked on uh, the first one was like the digital tools project, which is the Nui Blanche. Um, it was called Aura. Mm-hmm. It was basically this kind of like ribbon that was constructed out of a series of triangular panels, and yeah. it was um, we used like a bunch of um, syringes basically to like act as kind of like hydraulic pistons with these like plungers that would close. Um, apertures that allowed light through and the whole thing was kind of like skinned with like a fabric so that it would all kind of like move together Mm -hmm. the whole idea was like as people would walk through this tunnel where this ribbon kind of like started from one side went over like act as kind of like a ceiling condition and then transition onto the other side and like as you push one plunger at the beginning it would kind of push out another plunger at the very end of the yeah um ribbon um that was the first one that I did like uh, the ING cart mm-hmm. like a small project um, for ING or, or Tangerine. I think they, they transitioned. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then I did um, Stomata with um, which was in the Batashu museum. I think it was also a, a Nui Blanche project mm-hmm. with uh, Matt Siriano and um, Rachel Law and Kevin. Yeah. And yep. Elsa. Um and then, yeah, the footage, um, also Battery Museum, like window installation, which was a bunch of um, basically dowels that were sticking out. And that was with um, myself, Sarah Lipset, um, uh, Naveed, Michelle, yeah. um, and a few uh, interior design students as well. So, so, I mean, with all these kinds of projects under your belt, I, I mean, let's, let's go back in time and assume the role of a student. I think, Jason, you were alluding to it earlier, but... I mean, why would a student want to spend more time on these type of extracurricular activities? Because unlike, say, studio, where it's actually benefiting a student with grades and it's part of the education, you know, you really don't have any business to undertake not only more stress, but also expenses and, and you know, possible life and limb going to the workshop. I mean, why, why would a student really want to take part in these kinds of things? Well, um, for, uh, do you want, uh, should I go ahead? Oh, okay, sorry. Jason, go uh, first. Jason, go. You uh, Jason, go first. Then we can just jump to Jordan's. Okay. Yeah, sure. So, uh, for me, why would a student jump on? It's to establish new skills that you would may you may or may not get in the studio atmosphere. Um, typically, uh, you know, you don't work at a one-to-one scale. Uh, you're not uh, uh, incorporating rapid prototyping into your design process, and uh, you're also uh, uh, having that opportunity to jump into real life uh, uh, 
uh, circumstances. So for example, you have scheduling, you have a workforce, you have uh, a budget and all these factors um, aren't necessarily covered in the, in the studio atmosphere. And so going in, trying out a, a design build project in any capacity while it's volunteering or, or being the, uh, the designer, you have that opportunity to sort of place yourself in different aspects of a design process and construction, assembly, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Jordan, you got anything to say that? Yeah, no, basically what Jason said, but um, uh, personally, I think it's also not just like uh, it's good for your architecture career, but I think it's also really great for personal growth. Like, uh, to be honest, there's a lot of life lessons that you get from doing projects like these because you, you get to work with your classmates in a, in a real life setting as opposed to just theoretical like projects in studio. You get to make something real and life lessons like, uh, you know, like measure twice, cut once type of things and mm. take your time. Communication is key. You know, technique is everything. You won't know these things until you, um, you actually get to build something that has some use. You know, it's not a, um, it's not, you're, you're creating a functional object, I guess, in some way, because it is actually being interacted with somebody else as opposed to just submitted as a project. Yeah, uh, that's, I think that's, that's right. Yeah. And then Phil, do you got anything to add to that one? Um, yeah, I mean, like they pretty much said it all, but yeah, like for me, I guess it was like the ma the major thing was, um, like, yeah, what Jordan just pretty much said was like actually creating this like object, like up until that point, everything was like a representation of this like idea of a building kind of thing, whether it was like renderings or like scaled models, but like mm -hmm. this was like the first kind of opportunity to actually like build something uh, like one-to-one -one and actually like consider like these very kind of like critical details of like how these things get like put together and how things get built and all that. Um, it wasn't so, just kind of like assuming that something would work. You actually had to do it. Okay. So I think uh, gentlemen, you guys have raised a bunch of good reasons why one would want to take on these types of extracurricular design builds. I mean, and I was kind of being facetious about the fact that it's like, why would I continue that stress in studio into like the real world? But obviously there are real, issues that arise. And, and I think, uh, Jordan, you were mentioning it about life lessons. I mean, communication is key, but working with other people, um, that is a hard, hard issue. I mean, in all the projects that you gentlemen have talked about, I mean, it wasn't a single person in Never. That's kind of like what architecture is. Like, you know, there might be a designer, but there's an entire team that collaborates, not just serves as slaves, right? That, that collaborates to make these things happen. I'll start with Phil. Um, like, I mean, can you speak to kind of coordinating and working with others during these types of projects? Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely like a challenge uh, to do, but um, the, I think the best way to approach it is like to be like brutally honest with like your skill sets and what you are capable of doing and then allocating um, different tasks to certain people that have those better skill sets. And then if people want to get better at certain things, they can also sort of like help out or tag along to, to learn more about it and sort of build their, their knowledge on that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think that you're definitely right. That's one of the biggest challenges is kind of like coordinating with a big team who have a lot of opinions. Yeah. And then, and then just throwing it back to Jason, though, like, you, you know, as, as someone who's kind of taught uh, a little bit more than, than the rest of the, our colleagues in the, in the workshop, I mean, you know, interpersonal dynamics and like one of the questions that I often get is, you know, it's one thing to be able to have a good relationship with people and, and work, but I mean, Phil, you were also, you know, you had mentioned it. Let's talk about other things that you would learn. Um, you know, Jason, one of the first things that we often hear about when students are interested, like they see something coming up in the atrium and they go, I want to be involved. I mean, 
there's a couple of hurdles, right? Like, I mean, they might be a little bit apprehensive. I don't, like a first year, I, I, I'm really enthusiastic, but I don't know how to use Rhino yet. Or, you know, I, I don't know how to do Grasshopper. I don't know, I've never lifted a hammer before. I mean, Jason, how would you say, what were recommendations would you have to a student? And this is for Jason and Jordan. What, what kind of recommendations would you have for like, how do you get the confidence? How do you get that skills? Where do you start? Uh, I think it starts in the first week of undergraduate orientation for first years. Um, we offer uh, uh, skill building workshops to our first years and uh, that continues on all the way to fourth year. Individuals can come in and uh, build their physical design build skills in the shop. And while they're working in the shop, you uh, tend to organize with different individuals that are like-minded and uh, geared towards digital fabrication or design build or traditional fabrication. And so you meet up with those students and you bounce ideas and you generally uh, create a group and those, those groups end up uh, uh, proposing projects and uh, eventually they get up to the extracurricular committee. But essentially it's about finding people that are like-minded and, and that enjoy the same types of things that you do and that you could bounce ideas off of each other and, and uh, ultimately just try new things. Mm -hmm. um, but how do you actually get on these projects? It's all about putting yourself out there, seeing what's available, uh, you know, going on the, uh, uh, the bustler listings and seeing what competitions or what design builds are, are, are uh, being offered out there, you know, Nuit Blanche, uh, the, the uh, King Street Pilot Project, Winter Stations, they're all available to any student to, to apply mm -hmm. and the department's more than happy to build any of these projects. So, I mean, that, that's really interesting, but I like you, you, you put down a lot of things from the extracurricular committee down to like the types of projects, but, and, but I, I want to start back to one of the first things you mentioned, which was the, uh, the issue about like, now that we got these workshops in first year, because I think that's one of the big things I, as a, as a prof that teaches in first year, you often find that a lot of students are interested, but they're very kind of uh, standoffish when it comes to like, oh, I've never thought about myself working and putting something like a hammer and a nail together, right? And, and I want to say thank you again to the shop for coordinating those types of workshops. But, you know, coming back to you, Jordan, you know, those workshops, those are really good in Frosh Week, but how do you maintain that momentum? And how do you make sure that students in general have a greater confidence? So it's not just me and my colleagues enforcing, hey, get your butts down to the shop and do stuff. I mean, how do you kind of encourage that culture of making stuff after that first week workshop that you guys give? Well, the one thing that we're really trying to push is um, like making it very uh, inclusive. So when, like one was the, the workshops, just so students get to touch all the machines. Because one thing that we found uh, over the years is that students are shy and afraid of just even touching the machines because they, you know, they're afraid of getting hurt. So by breaking that initial fear by that, um, that first workshop, Hopefully it encourages them to come in more often for, you know, to do some studio things. The other, the other one thing, more things that we're looking into doing maybe in the next few years would be also um, little, um, not really workshops, but more of like um, activities of like, you know, we'll show you how to use the, the laser cutter to make little trinkets or the CNC to make some trinkets for Christmas or something like that. Those are some things that we're, we're looking into, especially when this whole thing is done, this whole COVID thing is done, but um, okay. those things are in the works for sure. 
so I mean that that's a really interesting approach where it's like you, you talked about the trinkets. I mean, I'm not sure if uh, we want to have all the kids during like the fall deadline making like Christmas ornaments and gifts no. for mom and dad. But but I, I do understand the kind of desire. Uh, to to have students take on smaller projects, but still take advantage of the of the of the big tools that are available. But I mean, now that now that I got you on, I think just starting with you, like I think one of the biggest problems with that uh, ability to go into the shop is that they're worried about getting hurt, worried about making those mistakes, right? Um, so so I think that how how do you reassure people um, to use you know the shop? Because let's be honest here, admittedly. Like the second you, you tell a student, hey, you have to put uh, safety boots on or that PPE is important or the fact that, oh, hey, hey, don't use this piece of equipment because only let Phil, you know, myself or whoever use it because uh, it's dangerous and it could be kickback. I mean, th those kinds of, you know, parameters start getting kids apprehensive about the safety and then it does, per, you know, kind of pervade into like issues of, oh man, I don't want to go to the shop because it's dangerous uh, or, or mm -hmm. I'm scared. I've never used the equipment. Like, how would you say that that kids see the shop as approachable? Like this is one chance where you got all the kids listening. This, you know, <laughs> this is the across. one chance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how do you, how do you, how do you, honestly, like how do you, how do you make it more accessible and approachable? Yeah, it's, it really is a big challenge. That's, that's one thing that I've been trying. That's one of my mandates that I've been trying to do for, for the past year is how to really create that, um, this idea that the shop should be, you're an extension of studio, right? So this is also a discussion that we've been doing with Mark and the rest of the other um, uh, faculty. Like, how do how does this become more integrated? It, it's a it's a tough it's a tough question. It's because um, not every every student like uh, all the students have different varying uh, experiences with the shop. Some students have done shop you know shop shop classes in high school. Some of them haven't. Some of them are mature students that have worked in shops. Some of them have never seen a shop before. So it's, it's really hard to create uh, um, an overlying arching, uh, you know, uh, procedure or some kind of system that all the students get to, to experience. So, so what we're doing right now is what we've been doing for the past some years as well. It's just doing it case by case. So whenever a student comes down, downstairs in the shop and needs to do a, a particular project, we show mm -hmm. them the best method, the safest way to do it. Um, we walk them through it. So for every student, we do that. We, okay. It's not like, yeah. So okay, we, so, so no, but, but, but I want to I mean, I understand this because I think <clears throat> just for the audience here, yeah. let, to walk me through this because let's say, for example, and I'm going to put this in, back in the context of design build, okay? Because I think that under a curricular sense, uh, we could arrange for workshops to send everyone down to, again, I remember this from first year last term where we sent all the kids to learn how to like basically, you know, use a saw, right? Which, which is good, right? But um, take it one step further. So I'm, I'm a kid in say second year and I've got this really good idea to uh, design something for Nuit Blanche, okay? And it, it involves, uh, I don't know the technolo technological slant, but I got an idea that when I push this, a light turns on here. When I step on this, um, the light does this, and it's got to look like this crazy wavy form. And again, they're second year, so they've kind of got a rough sense of things. Maybe I'll make it out of wood. So what do I do? What, what, where, where would I start and how do I approach this? Because I want to make sure kids understand you know, gain the ball rolling so that it's not just I have an idea and then dump it to the extracurricular committee, but instead there's some level of consultation beforehand. Like, give me oh, some I steps. See. Give me some sense of this, how, how to make that confidence, right? 
I see what you're saying. Thanks, Vince. <laughs> this is the one chance. Basically, go down to the shop and ask us. That's the, the first thing that you could do to give yourself a better idea of what, uh, you know, what materials you should use, what techniques, even if it's, uh, you know, just the idea of it being feasible is to go downstairs, speak to either Phil, myself, or Jason, you know, what, you know, what is this? Like, is this possible? Can we make this? Uh, what kind of materials we should use, et cetera. That's the first step that I would always say. Oh, okay. But, but let's, let's drill down on this because I mean, you're typically in so you probably are maybe you're the manager of your office, you know, doing certain meetings and stuff. So I come in down and, and I'm not saying that it's, it's, this is the exact situation, but let's say I come down and I, I see, let's say Jason, I'm, I'm seeing like, you know, do I, Jason, would I just go to you? Is that, is that how I do this? You can come down talk to me directly uh, haphazardly. That's fine. But if you want to shoot us an email off all three of the technicians and we can set up a time where we can all sit down, which might be a little bit more efficient for you. Mm -hmm. so, so is that the preferred model? Whose email do I like, do I send it to like just Jason or do I send it to like, is there a general shop email? What, what email should I be sending it to? So you can send it to all three of our emails. My email is jason.ramelson at ryerson.ca. I believe Philip is ftisler at ryerson.ca and Jordan is jordans.so at ryerson.ca. Okay. So then I can just send it there, possibly book a meeting because I know sometimes it gets hairy during deadline time, right? I think it, it's better allocations of time. So I'm not just haranguing you guys or standing there waiting while you guys are like, you know, maybe busy doing some other CNC job or something, right? So then we sit down, we talk it through, okay? And I'm so to Phil, I, I got the design. Phil, what kind of questions are you going to ask of me when I show you my rough concept? Oh man, I don't know. I mean, that's like, <laughs> depends I'm on the sorry. project, I guess. <laughs> well, I've just described it to you, right? So let's say, for example, um, oh, the got, lighting I, thing. yeah, the light, like what, what are you going to, how, how are you going to help me? Like, I, I, I totally don't know anything. What are you going to, what are you going to do? What kind of questions do you ask? What kind of things am I going to give you? Are you going to give me homework? What, what do I need to know, man? Well, I guess like, well, first we would ask like what kind of, um, like effect or like experience that you're trying to like produce or convey with this like object. Mm -hmm. And then we might start that might like lead us into like this discussion of like which material you might want to choose based off of like, like you're doing lighting. So maybe you're going to want to obviously some type of like acrylic or something that's like translucent or can let light through, or, or it really depends on like what the, the project is. But like, I guess that initial concept is what's going to start like, like um, starting the discussion of what materials to use and then that will later on lead into like what um, machinery or like fabrication techniques to use in order to achieve that, that like okay. desired effect or something. And then ostensibly, if you've gone through and explained to me the, if, I've explained to you the effect and you've told me the, the different options, but let's say, for example, you say like, again, I'm second year, uh, duh, you just go and CNC route it. No, I'm in second year. I have probably use the CNC router. Like how, how are you going to broker that to me? Like how, how are you going to say, well, just go and CNC it. Like how are you going to make sure that I know what a CNC does and how long it'll take? Right. Um, I think like before you even get to that point, I think like you, it would be more beneficial to create a little like prototype or like a proof of concept to show that this thing works mm. and you don't necessarily need to spend the, the amount of time that it takes to like set up like a CNC file to do that. If you can accomplish it using just like the standard woodworking tools or even with like cardboard and, and like acetate and paper just to like show that this idea works. And then, yeah, eventually we'd, we'd move into that. Yeah. I guess as a, as a second year, you'd have to, um, like the, the software that we use for the, the CNC is a plugin for Rhino. So you'd have to basically learn the Rhino software or be able to either 
take your AutoCAD file and bring it into Rhino or your SketchUp file and bring it into Rhino. Okay, um, so then at that point though, I mean, now that you're throwing in all this extra stuff, I mean, I, I haven't learned that. I, I just took second year studio, I'm not, I'm not aware. I mean, uh, Jordan, yeah. do we have workshop or Phil, do we have like some mechanism by which I will learn how to use the CNC now? I think we do have a, a few like tutorials available, um, video tutorials of the CNC, but typically when a student comes down to use a CNC, I, or one of us will generally, the way I do it basically is I sit down at the computer with them, I open up their file, doesn't matter how rough it is, we, we like to see it sort of ahead of time so that we can give you feedback on it. And then I, I personally, I go through the entire process. I explain to every student how basically what the different end mills do, like what's the difference between an upcut and a downcut and a compression bit and how you want to sort of like approach the material, how you want to cut or how many depths you want to do, just like the kind of typical standard um, uh, procedures that any sort of CNC machinist would, would know kind of thing. So I, I try to do this kind of like okay. crash course of like condensing all that information and, and giving it to the students and hopefully they um, absorb it. And, and you can kind of quickly tell with certain students whether they're really interested in it or whether they're kind of there just to get, get it done kind of thing. Okay. So now that we've kind of got all that down. Okay. So now I have some sense that it's feasible that it would take me like half a day to mill out X number of panels. Right. Okay. So now I'm, I'm not, I got the idea. I got that clear cut precision on what materials are involved. Now, Jason, I think there's a really good opportunity for you to tell us, um, I'm a student. What's this extracurricular committee? What do I do with this? Well, I think, yeah, before even um, talking about the committee, I mean, uh, let's say we, we were talking about CNC fabrication. Okay, uh, yeah. That will give us an indication of potential uh, quantities of, of material. So, for example, if we have like a rib structure, we've laid out all of our pieces and, and you know, that'll give us a, a rough estimate of how many sheets we would have, which would then allow us to make estimates on our schedule and budget. I would also like to say that we like to talk about hardware first, usually, because those are the elements that aren't necessarily uh, variable. So uh, mm -hmm. nothing bolts don't change. And so um, students can, you know, go to that, uh, those materials first and uh, start to prototype right, right then and there. Um, but then once they've gathered their design, you know, their renderings, uh, 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 their material breakdown, maybe some construction details, some assembly diagrams, a, a full breakdown of their budget and schedule, um, they'll apply online um, at, to the extracurricular committee through the project information form. And essentially all this that this is, is an information breakdown or uh, assessment of what you are asking the department for or what you are asking ARCSOC for. So that's kind of a little bit different, but for the extracurricular uh, explicitly, you would be doing a presentation based off of what you're trying to achieve, what you need from the department and uh, what, re what resources uh, are required basically. And um, at that point, uh, the extracurricular committee will give you a, a yes or a no. And based off of the yes or a no, you might have to do some development work on, on the project. And so it can be a conditional yes, for example. Um, it could be a no for later. And, and uh, this is more of a summer project as opposed to a winter project, for example. So there's a lot of variables. But um, the extracurricular committee track record is actually really high. So um, the odds are that if a student or student group uh, applies to the committee, that they're more than likely to proceed. So I, I think it's important to just clarify for, for the audience, though. Um, yeah, there is ARCSOC, which tends to deal with a lot of the funding issues, like whether or not if your project requires a lot of money to buy, say, 
uh, hardware or, or, or certain uh, types of services. That's the ARC SOC dimension, which, you know, there are uh, percentages or fees collected from each student uh, that really afford students the ability to do these extracurricular events, not just simply design build, but and anything else in between. Um, but the uh, I think the clarity that Jason's trying to has presented, um, I just want to dig down a little bit further. Sometimes students have really good projects and great proposals. Um, and sometimes the shop or the facility or the department doesn't have the ability to deal with it. Um, obviously, when uh, the school is going through full the deadline time, uh, it's really insane to imagine that an extracurricular project can hog up all the laser cutting um, uh, resources that we've got. Similarly, if the project requires a lot of, um, say, fine level of production, which is not something that our department is capable of. Like, it's not a manufacturing hub, right? It's, it's actually a great place to prototype, great place to do a lot of design work. But we're not uh, basically like Chinese manufacturing facility, right? So we can't make like 6,000 uh, of these types of components in, in your particular design. And in a similar vein, we also don't have uh, certain resources. So we might have knowledge bases, we might have great staff and faculty that can help, you know, bring these designs together. We might even have a certain amount of funding that can come about from ArcSoc. But some key assets like time or even space um, prove to be problematic. Like some projects are really great ideas, but we have no capacity to, you know, whether it's prototyping, assembling them, uh, storing stuff inside our department, especially during the school year. It's it's next to nothing. I mean, Jordan, can you speak to any of the kind of limitations that we've got for design build projects? Well, like you just spoke to it earlier, it's um, storage is one big thing that we don't have in the building. Our building is really old. It's um, <laughs> everyone's fighting for space. So there's no storage. Um, in terms of like um, the limitations, for sure, it's uh, anything metallic. So uh, aluminum is the, the most, the, the only thing that we can really do. But aside from that, for steel, we can't do any of that. So we don't have welding capabilities. We don't have sheet bending capabilities, like in terms of the higher gauge, higher gauge um, sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's basically just wood and plastic. That's uh, what we have in terms of materials. Mm-hmm. And just again, be mindful of any spatial requirements because I think a lot of students forget the fact that stuff takes up space. Uh, despite being an architecture program, we often forget that things take up space and volume. So just be mindful of that when you guys start considering how and when those proposals and projects would go through. But while I got all three of you here, what are some baseline mistakes that we often see, uh, whether it's in design builds or just in general in the workshop? I mean, you, you and I, like all of us, we've had discussions on like, oh man, I can't believe the kids don't know how to do X or like, man, they keep on doing this thing again and again and again. Like, what are some baseline mistakes, common mistakes that we'd like to just address right now? Like kids, if you want to save frustration, you want to save time, do this. I mean, you guys have been working in the shop long enough. You guys have also been students in the shop long enough to know that like what the student demands are and to also see it from your side, which is like, hey, I got to shut down the shop at a certain time. I can't just cater and leave the shop open until like midnight. So what kind of mistakes are being made? What kind of misunderstandings are being made? And like, this is your chance to say, kids, don't do this. Or kids, definitely do this. I'll start with, I'll start with you, Jason. Yeah, sure. So uh, packing your, your laser sheets is a huge issue these days. A lot of students uh, go directly to the laser cutter uh, for their fabrication purposes. And so 
if you're going to pack uh, a sheet with a lot of little pieces or if you're doing a lot of rastering or, or a lot of little etching like brickwork, for example, uh, you, you really, really need to do an estimate. And so uh, both on the boss laser and the universal lasers, we have uh, estimates that, that we can give you on time. Uh, we can also just take a look at it. Uh, the Amongst the three of us, we've seen so many laser cut files that we can give you a time estimate just based off of viewing it. Um, and so if you're unsure and you, you think you need more than one of those hours, maybe come down uh, before uh, your time slot and uh, discuss how much time you actually may need and, and you would uh, uh, book accordingly. And so that's just one way of uh, uh, not running out of time and making sure that you get all of your components uh, laser cut. Um, I just want to interject on this one too, though, Jason. I mean, uh, can we talk about template files? Yeah, so um, uh, in the same location as uh, all of our other files, um, on the department website, you'll be able to find uh, templates, uh, metric and imperial templates for both the boss and uh, universal lasers. And uh, within those templates, we have a legend uh, that has line work attributed to all of our necessary cut uh, layers. And so you have a cut uh, etch line and a raster line. And so what you would mm -hmm. do is match, match those properties and and you're ready to go. But as long as you have the, uh, the pieces within the, the layout. Okay, so prep those files on the laser and nest them as best as you can and follow the template for sure. Phil, what, what kind of insights would you have? What kind of mistakes can we prevent with your sagacity here? Um, I don't know, there's, a, there's it, it can occur. So many. Like, yeah, they can occur at any point in like the, the design or like fabrication process. Like I, I can give you like a few examples of stuff that we might've done not wrong, but like we've learned from, um, for example, for like stomata, um, was basically constructed using a bunch of like triangles cut out of, uh, acetate basically. And, um, I think we had like thousands of these triangles and they were all, every single one was unique. So it was this nightmare of having to like keep track of every one of these things. We had to like label every single one of them. Each one of them had like a part number and then, we ended up laser cutting them and then storing them all into like a, a cardboard box. And then we started assembling things and you'd, you'd connect two pieces and you'd be like, okay, I need number 452. And then you'd go and rummage through this box until you found 452. And it was, uh, it was a bit of a, a <laughs> but um, man, now I got to put explicit language. God, fine, Phil, go on. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't know. <laughs> My bad. You can bleep it. <laughs> uh, fine. Go on. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, and then, yeah, so things like that, like uh, we could have gotten away with making them more um, standardized parts and stuff like that. Another common mistake that is you kind of students tend to kind of overlook the installation sequencing and process, which I think has gotten better over time. But um, there's a few little things that you can do to that to make it easier. For example, in like the footage project, the one in the Batashu Museum, we had a bunch of panels that were maybe like, um, four feet by eight feet um, and it was a frame basically and all these panels had to come together and um, it would have made our lives a lot easier if we just cut like a few um, locating like dowel holes mm. on the sides of each cable so that when we put these two pieces together they would line up perfectly and we, we wouldn't have to like really fiddle with it and it's it's hard for students to think of these things like right off the bat and, and that's really kind of one of the benefits of these design build projects is that after you finish everything is really the part where you learn so much of like what you could have done better and what, what you did wrong and, and like all these mistakes that you can like kind of fix. Yeah. And I, I was going to say, I think that, you know, similar to how 
Jason's kind of got a general template and the, the, the key things about packing. I think in, in a similar vein, the, the workshop does provide, and we just described earlier, that resource where, you know, instead of discovering it yourself or discovering it on the fly, you know, we have the capacity to chat with you guys, just make sure that things are properly done and that logistics oversight is actually not um, a blind spot, right? Um, so then, Jordan, do you want to tell me what are some common mistakes that, like, as the guy that's in the managerial seat right now, you mm -hmm. must be looking at something. And again, this is an opportunity to say, holy cow, guys, stop doing this, right? I, I mean, like, what are some, what, what are the things that you just really are getting frustrated over that you see people keep on doing? I mean, like, for example, one thing that I typically see whenever I pop down and see you guys, it's always those last minute things, which are like, you got a kid coming, go, hey, I need to do this. And it's like, uh, you're asking me now? Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, there's obviously those things, but I mean, what, as, as a manager of the shop now, tell me some basic things that you really want to stop. Well, oh, it's not really, you can stop. You can't really stop this, but it's good for people to educate themselves on what materials are. Like if you can start, you know, recognizing what the difference between MDF and plywood and solid wood is, you'll save yourself so much, you know, so much uh, pain and suffering later on in the future, making your models. And aside from that, like later on in the future, when you get into the industry, these things are really helpful, especially mm -hmm. when you can say that this is MDF, this is plywood, this is what we use for, um, for trimming and making, uh, you know, uh, furniture as opposed to anything structural, like learning what the differences between acrylic is and, you know, uh, the different types of plastics we have is because a lot of the time the student comes in and says, you know, I want to make this out of wood. And then that's all they say. <laughs> they grab a piece of MDF. I'm like, okay, you want to make it out of solid wood or MDF? You know, yeah. sometimes it, it's, not, it's not something we can stop, but it's more of like, you know, it, it's good if the students um, actually take the, uh, the initiative to mm -hmm. learn what these things are. It would be very nice. But I, I mean, while, while I got you on that one, then, our, I think one common question I get from upper years or issues that come about are, Hey, listen, now that I know how to use laser cutter, now that I know how to use a CNC router or what have you, what materials can I or can't I use on the laser cutter? I think that's one that always comes up. And like, you always have a kid's like, yeah, I saw this styrene stuff. And I was throwing it. Come on, tell, tell us now so that you guys don't have to deal with it later, right? Well, what, what, what things can or cannot go? Well, everything that we sell, <laughs> <laughs> everything that we sell that's in the laser cut uh, rack, that's what you can use. But if you want to experiment with weird things like uh like you know like leather or different types of fabric you have to speak to us first because we have to look at the properties of the material make sure it's not toxic you don't hurt anyone else uh there's a lot of things out there that are really uh, not good so mm -hmm. um so yeah so basically everything in our shelves everything that we sell use that <laughs> okay i have a couple of questions now um with respect to like just kind of weird things that come about from the shop because i mean you guys have all taught now or been uh, servicing the shop for a while now. You've seen some train wrecks of projects and uh, maybe you were privy to them, uh, Jordan. <clears throat> um, so uh, <laughs> I, I'm just wondering, what are some of the, uh, what are some of the weirdest things that you've seen come out of the shop? Uh, I know that you're trying to say the, um, <laughs> so basically what Vince is saying, it's the project that I did in his studio way back when, when I was a student in fourth year, it was a prototype for a, um, uh, a window or some kind of aperture. And for some reason, <laughs> it, it, um, 
my colleagues and classmates made fun of me because it did not, uh, I wanted to make it look like a stomata or a eyelet, but in a certain direction, it looked like something else. So, <laughs> so I think that's what Vince is alluding to. But yeah, it wasn't very weird. I thought it was very successful, actually. So just to put it in, in context, <laughs> it was... It was in Vegas. It was, a, it, was a, it was a studio in Vegas. So he was designing a building that pretty much is in the Mojave Desert. He had developed a kinetic facade system where he had apertures, where a slit would open and close um, to control lighting. And uh, needless to say, there was a point where some of your colleagues, not me, actually yeah. took a baby doll. And you want to describe this one? Well, I think there's a video online. I, I know. Hey, hey, don't talk about those videos <laughs> online. But what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, but describe <laughs> the video. Describe the video. Because I think that, that just, you can't make this stuff up. Oh, so it automatically opens and closes because that's the idea. Like it had like um, some kind of mechanism that I, I invented. And then um, they they took little baby toy feet and then stuck it through the thing. They, they actually paste the baby doll through the birth canal. So it was just <laughs> a weird looking thing. And it was even better when he had to present the project. Oh, yeah. When she was pregnant. He present, yeah, so we had, we, had a, we had a guest reviewer who was pregnant and... Uh, that was a hilarious review. Anyways, um, so that's your fun story of stuff that came out. Uh, Jason, it doesn't have to be your project. Uh, do you recall any weird or s stuff out of the shop? Uh, I don't know. I tend to gravitate towards some of the weird things because uh, they're hard to build, to be honest with you. Um, you know, when, when things get weird, it, 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 the details tend to get construed and so it becomes a challenge. Um, but I, I remember one project in fourth year, and if I remember correctly, it, the reason why it was so funny was because your uh, little brother, uh, what was his name again? Marcus, Marcus. Marcus. Marcus walked into our studio one day, and he went around to all the projects, and he identified one out of all of the projects and just completely ripped it all apart. Um, and, and he was like, that, he, first off, just let, let me clarify, at that point, I think Marcus was like 11 or 12? Something right. like that, yeah. Yeah, and, and he has no background in architecture, and he also has a learning disability. So I just want to put that one out there, so then, uh, just to, to set it all up for you, man. But yeah, he, he went directly to the one that uh, ended up being a, sh a shelf for all of our, uh, our garbage and, and toys and stuff. And so, uh, unfortunately, that model wasn't the best one in the studio. Uh, but, uh, and Marcus was sh sure uh, to identify that out, and uh, we all thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, the, the, the kid with special needs was able to point out the worst project. Oh, no, in he, went, he went directly to, to, the, to the one that everyone needed to see. Yeah, so just a mental note, if you have like uh, a kid who is not even trained in architecture, who's like all of 12 years old and is not even able to read, okay, is able to, you know, roast your project in fourth year, mm, that does not work and bode well for you. Anyways, Phil, what, what train wreck stories do you got on the, on the, on the model you know, shop side. Uh, I don't, to be honest, I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I just think like uh, these, uh, just in general, like it, it's always been with all these like design build projects, the amount of time that you spend together with the group, like building this thing and just like working on it together is always the, the funnest part of it. You end up really kind of like bonding. There's obviously like fights and arguments, but you always come out of it kind of, um, good friends and stuff like that. So wait, wait. it's really- so, so I don't even think you answered the question. That's like, I asked the question, what's the worst thing? What's the worst thing that came out of his uh, workshop? And you're like, you know, Jordan talks about like his, his vagina project. Jason talks about like, you know, a garbage project looks like a sh garbage shelf. And you're like, the worst thing that came out of the studio, uh, the workshop, 
bonding moments with other people. No, he's yeah, saying it's like all, a positive it's, spin on this thing. <laughs> he's saying it's all the extracurricular stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Okay, so boys, I know you guys got another meeting to do, but I want to wrap up with just one last question because I know a lot of people go to the shop and they come in last minute and they're always stressed out. And like, you know, it's not probably the best you know, I feel bad for you guys as well as the IT guys where it's like people only go to you when they really need something and they're in like dire straits, right? So, I mean, this is an opportunity to not only let them know that you guys are really good guys, but also, you know, is there something like, are there things that you'd want the student body or just anyone listening to kind of know about you guys that they wouldn't otherwise, um, right? Like I, I know all of you guys as students, I know different things in your backgrounds, but are there any things that you would want to share with the general population? Just about like that we wouldn't normally know about you. Start off with Phil because he's all about the positivity. Um, that they don't know about me. Yeah, know. <laughs> that Phil's really bald and he just has that man bun thing to cover up. I, I, like, what, yeah, what, exactly. Come on, yeah. No, yeah. Come on yeah. give me something good. I don't know. What do you mean? I'm pretty open with all the students. Oh, I, uh, you're not going to talk about your MBA dreams and how they kind of fell apart and all that stuff. Fine. We'll go. No, fine. We'll skip. We'll skip it. Okay. Jason, tell us something that the students would really benefit from knowing or like, would, like they probably wouldn't have known otherwise. Um, um, yeah, uh, I'm big on basketball. If you want to come downstairs and talk shop about ball, I'm up for that. I'm a huge camper, uh, uh, avid canoeist, uh, adventurer. Uh, so, uh, you know, <laughs> It's a like a dating site. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, constantly, uh, constantly tinkering on on multiple projects, and so I have, always have something on the go. And so, if you want to see what I'm working on, uh, by all means. Okay, and uh, Jordan chuckles here. Uh, other than your, uh, well, I know a bunch of things, but tell us what one thing that that we should know about you, man. Oh. Um sideline jeweler so if you guys want to propose to anyone anytime soon just hook me up um if you guys need jewelry and whatever that's what i do on the side uh standard woodworking stuff we make bowls like all three of us make bowls so if you guys uh want to commission us with like some really cool wooden bowl you can I probably can work do that. That. <laughs> <laughs> this is an ad <laughs> Uh, so you guys uh, have the workshop Etsy uh, site, or like are you guys doing the one of a kind thing? Like, what, what what's going on here? Make wooden spoons on the side. Um, what else do we do? Yeah, we mostly we were outdoors people, so we do um, camping a lot. But yeah. one thing that I'd like to say for now, like for all the students, is like um, uh, I know everyone's pretty stressed right now with the whole situation. Try to keep calm as much as possible. It's it's really not. It, it's just going to blow over in the next few months. So hopefully I'll see all of you guys back in the shop pretty time, pretty soon. Yeah. Um, yeah and, one and small meanwhile, message. the last time I saw you guys, meanwhile, last time I saw you guys, you guys were like figuring out how to use the uh, 3D printing solutions to uh, make uh, hand sanitizer. And, uh, you know, hey, where are, all those, where are all those dust extraction masks now? Anyways. Yeah, they're um, all going to the hospitals. Oh you, oh, you legit sent them there. No, not yet, but we're, we are going to be sending them soon. We are making, uh, right now, we're, uh, well, not working directly, but we are s sort of collaborating with the CGL in making face shields. Yeah. Well, you know what's for, funny about that? So, so this yeah. is a crazy thing. So, I, this is a little side there while we're talking topic. Um, you know, 
two days, okay, a, a few weeks uh, ago, I got asked by Vice Magazine um, to do an interview on like 3D printing and like, oh yeah, I see everyone's doing it. So shouldn't the universities be uh, 3D printing? Because then we could just like solve all the mask shortage by doing this. And I said, listen, 3D printers are slow. It's going to take forever. There's no way you would have like a, an entire hospital fitted out with all the masks 3D printed. And of course, two days later, Anderson over, he, he's, he's on CP's on the news going, yeah, yeah I know. And I was like, no, come on, man. So, so I was like, no. He's yeah, doing know, facial. It's not that I know, I know, I know, I know. But it, I know, but it was just crazy how like, because like, then the, the interviewer later on is like, uh, yo, your buddy over there. And I was like, ah, oh, dude, how did you even get into the building? Anyways, guys, I just th thank you very much for your time. I know you guys got another meeting. Um, I just want to say, hopefully all of you guys uh, listening got a good idea or a glimpse into like the kind of benefits of design build. Certainly uh, the guys in the shop are very amenable. They've worked on them. They know the stresses. They also know the tips and tricks on how to make sure you guys do them better, right? Um, we really want you guys to, we encourage you guys to continue the legacy that, you know, Phil, Jordan, Jason have done, which is to ensure that students and the general public know that Ryerson students do design, detail, and deliver. Because unlike other programs, we don't just draw and imagine buildings. We actually take our designs and actually make them into reality. And that's something that the shop is indispensable at helping out with. And of course, hopefully the, this little conversation opens the door on making sure you guys are aware that we got pretty, you know, top-notch guys that are really accessible and are more than willing to help you out. So thank you again, guys, and I hope you guys take care. Thanks, Vince. You as well. Thanks, Vince. Yeah, thanks, Vince. Take it easy. No problem.